Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your altar there, before, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree quickly with your adversary while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, You will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Jesus has been talking about the kingdom, life in the kingdom. What does law look like in the king's kingdom? How will the king dispense justice? In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has spoken about the meaning of true righteousness. Righteousness, remember, is something that is on the inside as well as the outside. True righteousness is pictured in the person of Jesus in chapter 5, verses 1 through 48. And then must be practiced by believers in chapter 6, verse 1, all the way to chapter 7, verse 12. True righteousness will be able to withstand the tests of self-denial in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Fruit-bearing in chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Obedience in chapter 7, verses 21 through 29. Jesus has elaborated on some spiritual principles. And now he's going to describe the laws in the king's kingdom. In the, several, in the next several verses, Jesus is going to be speaking about anger in verses 21 through 26. Lust in verses 27 through 32. Deception in verses 33 through 37. Retaliation in verses 38 through 44. We might break these down into two broad categories that Jesus invites you to think about. The two broad categories deal with, well... Our individual lives in verses 21 through 26. And things that we deal with in our family life or social life or community life in verses 27 through 32. There are principles or laws that govern life in verses 21 through 32. Laws that govern our lips in verses 33 through 37. Laws that govern love in verses 38 through 48. And so he's going to begin with the law concerning murder in verse 21. But then he will reveal murder's source 
in verse 22. It's the heart. Jesus will speak of the growth of anger in verse 22. And the judgment that anger invites in verse 22. And then he will speak about the answers to anger. His answer? Reconciliation. With brothers and sisters in verses 23 and 24. But what are the dangers? What are the dangers of those who postpone reconciliation? What, what are the dangers of the person who holds on to bitterness or hatred or anger in verse 25? It's going to lead to judgment in verse 26. And so let's look carefully at verse 21. The lost command to kill. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, he's not pitting himself against the Old Testament revelation. He's not an adversary to the Old Testament law. He's basically talking about something else. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But he uses that expression. You have heard that it was said to those of old. He'll repeat the expression in verse 27 in regards to adultery. In verse 31 in regards to divorce. In verse 33 in regards to swearing. In verse 38 in regards to retaliation. In verse 43 in regards to the law of love. Jesus does not reject God's law. But calls into question the wrong application by the religious leaders. The contrast is between what the law says and what the various leaders interpreted what it said. And so Jesus seems to give what I'm going to suggest to you is the real meaning of certain laws. Just what God originally intended the law to say. I want you to pause for a moment because, again, I want to make this so simple. Imagine Jesus says, you've heard in the past that it's a good idea not to kill each other. And everybody goes, this is, this is a really good idea. It's really a good idea that if you're going to live in a world, if you're going to live in a family, and if you're going to live in a community... And if you're going to live in a country where there's going to be peace and prosperity, does it kind of make you feel a little bit better to live in a world where people don't kill each other? Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Especially what you see in the news where the Islamic states take over and they basically say, hey, you know what? We don't like what you think and we don't like the way that you live, so we're going to cut your head off. And you go... I don't want to live in that world. I want to live in a world where murder is a bad thing. The law against murder is found in the sixth commandment. Everybody seems to know it. We have it posted right outside in the foyer. Exodus chapter 20 verse 13. Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 17. Not a whole lot of people know a whole lot about the Bible. But most people can quote, thou shalt not kill. They know that one. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. 
Romans 13.9. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15, Peter says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer. In other words, Christian, it's a bad idea for you to be a murderer. John MacArthur tells the story of visiting a, a prisoner in prison, and he goes, you're John MacArthur. He goes, I, I listen to you every day on the radio. You're my hero. John MacArthur goes, what are you in for? He goes, I'm in here for murder. And he goes, shh, 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 don't tell anybody you know me. It doesn't make sense that a Christian should go to jail for murder or as a thief. 1 Peter 4.15 says, But none of you should suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other people's matters. And you might be thinking, wow, Peter, you lumped the murderer, the thief, the evildoer with the busybody? Because he understands something. And that's the motives. I was talking to a former detective this morning. I asked about some of the motives for murder. He mentioned greed. He mentioned jealousy. He talked about sex. But the primary motive seemed to be fear, jealousy, money, revenge, protecting someone that you love. And Jesus will basically say, there's another motive for murder, and that's anger. We know that the first murder in the Bible is that very, very familiar story of Cain and Abel. Again, most of you learned it at some point in your life in Genesis chapter 4, verses 9, and then again in verse 13, the story of Cain and Abel. The first prohibition against murder takes place in Genesis chapter 9, in verse 6. After the flood and after Noah and his family are embarking, the Lord reveals whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. That's what it says. God explains the penalty and the reason why murder is forbidden. Every Jew would have known the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. The commandment didn't prevent or prohibit the taking of life, but rather the unlawful taking of life. And the unlawful taking of life carried with it the death penalty. So the people listening to Jesus would have probably had the same feelings and they would have experienced the same thoughts that you're experiencing right at this very moment when you might be thinking, Thank God I've never killed anybody. If murder simply means the unlawful act of taking another person's life, most of you, by definition, are not murderers. Jesus has already warned the people that righteousness isn't just simply external, but internal. Jesus is, in effect, saying, You've heard it said in the past about not killing people and not murdering, but I'm going to invite you to consider the kind of world in which in my kingdom it's a sin to harbor murderous thoughts. Remember, you've heard it said in the past, don't kill people. And I'm saying to you, 
Don't even think about killing people. Don't have murderous thoughts. And so when Jesus says, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment, does he mean human courts or does he mean heavenly courts? I think that the answer is both. He's talking about in the real world in which we live, if you kill someone, could there be consequences? Let's hope so. But even if you get away with it, in this world, could there be consequences? I know so. Tragically, I deal with people who really live in this real world where their husband has been murdered or their wife has been murdered or their child has been murdered. And usually it falls into two categories where the murderer is known and exposed or where the murderer is not known and exposed. But Jesus is going to invite us, remember, to think beyond just the external, but the internal. And he's going to invite you into a kingdom where you can't have a heart filled with hatred and anger towards the people that God has placed in your life. That's what Jesus means when he says in verse 22, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell, fire. Anger is one letter short of another word. Danger. You just have to add a D. But look what he says, but I say to you. In what sense? Remember, the Lord said, please don't kill each other. And Jesus is basically saying, I know that the Bible says, please don't kill each other. But I'm saying to you that don't be angry with each other. Why is he saying this? Because he knows the roots of murder. And so when he says, I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause. Pause for a moment. Does Jesus allow anger with cause? It would appear that there is such a thing as justifiable anger. The ancients knew this. Even Aristotle would, said some 300 years earlier, anybody can be angry, that's easy. But to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way that is not within everybody's power and it is not easy in john's gospel chapter 2 verses 15 and 16 we read so he jesus made a whip of cords and drove from the temple area both sheep and cattle he scattered the coins of the money changers he overturned their tables to those who sold doves he said get out of here how Dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? The preacher Henry Ward Beecher said, A man who does not know how to be angry also doesn't know how to be good. 
And a man that does not know how to be shaken to his heart's core with indignation over things evil is either a fungus or a wicked man, unquote. I like that. Henry Ward Beecher is basically saying, we live in a world. And guess what? In this very real world in which we live, we're going to experience emotions. And if you don't experience emotions, then there's something wrong with you. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, be angry. And you, I know most of you are going, Whew. And then he said, be angry, but don't sin. You mean there's a kind of an anger where you don't sin, apparently. And is there a kind of anger where you do sin? The answer is apparently. By the way, let me ask you this question. Who created human beings? God. Did God create human beings with emotion? Yes. Did God make a mistake when he made you a human being with emotion? The answer seems to be no. So there must be some legitimate purpose that anger serves. Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. The Bible doesn't forbid anger against sin. Jesus is concerned when people direct anger towards people in what way? When is anger justified? I'm going to suggest to you it seems to be when God's honor is at stake or someone else is being misused or abused or mistreated or wronged. What does murder have to do with anger? Well, Jesus will rightly point out that murder begins in the heart and it begins with anger, Jesus points out that anger without a cause is inexcusable and evil. Well, wasn't Jesus angry? Again, in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, we read, and when he, Jesus, looked round about them with anger being grieved over the hardness of their hearts. In that passage, Jesus is angry with the people who are in the synagogue, particularly the religious leaders who are angry towards Jesus because they don't want him to heal a man with a withered hand because it's the Sabbath day. In other words, Jesus is angry with a group of people who are angry with him for wanting to do something good and decent and helpful. Some of the religious leaders and Jews interpreted Christ's love and compassion and mercy and miracle powers as a violation of their Sabbath rules. And so here, 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 when Jesus says, whoever is angry. It's in what's called the present participle, and you may not understand what that means, but let me help you out. It translates the word origizo menos. Origizo is the word 
that you and I would normally use for angry. Menos is a word that means to abide or to live. And so what Jesus is doing is he's condemning the constant or perpetual state or the constant habit of anger towards someone. Imagine a person says, I'm angry with you, or I'm furious with you, or I'm upset with you. Now, imagine that same person says, I'm angry, upset, or whatever, and it, it, it lingers to the next day, and 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 the next day. Jesus is condemning the constant or the perpetual state or the habit of anger towards someone. The anger that Jesus is describing, we know is an unrighteous anger. We know that it's an unrighteous anger because it's a settled anger, a simmering anger, a stewing anger, a malice that is nursed inwardly and you feed it and you continue to feed it. Jesus is pointing out that you may have managed to avoid killing someone, but you are killing someone right at this very moment inside of your heart. Why is this important? Because remember who Jesus is talking to. Remember he's speaking to religious people living in a religious society who do religious things. You've probably heard someone say, I'm a good person. Okay? On what basis would you say that you're a good person? I never killed a single person. Jesus says, have you ever hurt someone inside of your heart? Have you ever, ever said, I wish you were dead? By the way, has anyone ever said that to you? I wish you were dead. And your husband or your wife or your brother or your sister or someone who cares about you says, they're just joking. They don't really wish that you were dead. They just wish you lived in China. They don't actually want you to be dead they just want you to live somewhere where they never have to deal with you where they never have to speak to you where they would never have to have anything to do with you but then there are the real people who really do want you dead that in their heart in their heart in their heart they hate you they they don't have enough courage or they don't want to face the consequences of actually killing you. They hate you in their heart. Or they'll curse you in their heart. Or they'll malign you in their heart. Jesus is saying that a person who is angry and wishes another person harm or death is guilty of murder and deserves a murderer's punishment. And that might shock you and that might surprise you because you live in a world where you go, hey, did you know that in, in the United States of America, did you know even in the, in the great state of Colorado, hey, did you even know that in the jurisdiction of Littleton, there are laws that prevent you from killing people? And you go, good and now jesus says but in my kingdom even there are though there are laws on the books that say murder's a crime jesus is in effect saying in my kingdom 
where I'm the king, I care about your heart. Now, there are probably some wicked people listening to this message right at this very moment and go, oh, are you going to be the thought police? And the answer is no, I'm not going to be the thought police. But Jesus as king reserves the right to be the thought king. Do I know what's going on inside of your heart? No. Does Jesus know what's really the truth about what's going on inside of your heart? And Jesus is in effect saying, in my kingdom, in the kingdom that I'm inviting you into, in the kingdom that I want you to participate in, I not only care about what you do, I care about what you think. We as Christians have to learn to be patient and kind and long-suffering. For what reason? Knowing that we ourselves are sinners, it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. We can't live in a constant state of anger, an unprovoked anger. It has no place in the Christian's heart. I want to ask you a question. How many people do you suppose have died this week in this world because anger was allowed to go unchecked and now you begin to understand because the truth is we live in that broken world by the way only about one I want to say in seven people will be murdered somewhere in the world that's way too many and so what does Jesus say? What, what does Jesus say when anger is allowed to escalate? Read it for yourself. Look again in verse 22. And whoever says to his brother, Racha, shall be in danger of the council. Anger can be bad. But now the anger escalates to name calling. And you might be thinking, Racha, I don't know what that word means. It's a transliterated word. Jesus is speaking in the language of the common people at that particular moment. It's called Aramaic. And raka is an Aramaic word. It means worthless. It means empty one. And so when he says, and whoever says to his brother, raka... He's, he's saying that when, when someone is using this expression... You're worthless. You're not good for anything. You're worthless or you're empty. Jesus says that they could be in danger of the council. What council is he making reference to? He's talking about the Jewish council. He's talking about the Sanhedrin. He's talking about the court system. Because you see, in that particular culture and society, if you called someone empty-headed... Or you called them worthless. Even in that culture and society, there were libel laws and slander laws. We're not talking about some sort of slip of the tongue. We're talking about a person who accuses someone of something else. And you can present evidence in a court. Jesus is in effect saying verbal abuse that leads and constitutes criminal behavior deserves punishment. And that might come as a shock and as a, as a surprise to you. You've all heard it said, 
Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And you know that's not true. You know in your heart that that's not true. You know that words really do hurt, especially if you've been on the end of those hurtful words. And so Jesus begins to describe anger in stages. A burning resentment in the heart that leads to saying stuff with your mouth. One person calls another person worthless, empty-headed. In our own culture and society, we have probably an idiomatic equivalent as far as word goes. It's our word, airhead. And so... He'll continue with the unchecked consequences of anger. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Here, the word fool translates the Greek word moros. I know what some of you are thinking. I think I know that word. Moros. Yeah. The, the, the English word moron comes from that word. The word means dull, stupid, moron. But here it probably means something a little bit more. It probably means a moral fool. That is, a person who ought to be dead and expresses the desire that they ought to be dead. The idea is that this is a person who's engaging in a behavior that looks like it deserves a certain kind of punishment. It's quite common to hear people call on God to damn a person, to damn a people, to damn a country. To damn a football team. That person is calling on God to consign that person to hell. And here's what Jesus is basically saying. Such a person places himself or herself at great risk. In what sense? In the risk of judgment. In what sense? But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. The word is Gehenna or Gina Puros. Here it's translated hell, fire. This is the place where the trash was thrown out. There were two valleys. There was in Jerusalem two great deep crevices. One was called Hinnom. The other one was called Kidron. In the Kidron, this is the valley that would have separated the temple from the Mount of Olives. And the valley called Hinnom was the place where the people would put out the trash. This was a place where the trash was constantly being burned. This was the place where if a person died without mom or dad or brother or sister, they had no means or family they would quite literally throw this unclaimed body in the dump so what happens when you 
unashamedly proclaim that someone is worthless, Jesus is in effect saying, if you feel comfortable and confident that you have the privilege to say that someone is worthless, how can you pretend even for a moment that you can be worthwhile? Do you understand what's happening here? Jesus is basically saying that you can't do that. The two best times my granny used to say, to keep your mouth shut is when you're swimming and when you're angry. I miss her every single day. The person who calls another person a fool, Jesus is saying, will one day answer to God. Let's now put all of his thoughts together. Are you ready? Anger, according to Jesus, contains the seeds of murder. Abusive language contains the spirit of murder. Cursing language expresses the desire for murder. And so in the world in which Jesus lives and in the kingdom in which Jesus is the king, Jesus is basically saying, I don't want the seeds of murder and I don't want the spirit of murder and I don't want the desire for murder. And the right response should be, oh no, there's something wrong inside of me. There's something wrong inside of my heart. How in the world am I going to be able to change my heart? But I'm a good person. I only hate people who deserve to be dead. It's like my dad. I never killed anybody who didn't deserve it. Really? Really? Note what Jesus says about the escalation of anger. In the escalation of anger, there's the escalation of punishment. There's the judgment. There's the counsel. There's the hellfire. So what can we expect in this king's kingdom? Jesus, I'm going to suggest to you, says, I will deal with sin according to the severity of the sin. I will deal with the sin is what Jesus is saying. Is Jesus saying that if anyone has ever been angry with someone that they're going to go to hell? No, that's not what he's saying. Is Jesus saying that anger acted out can result in punishment? How many of you know that that is true? Some of you raised your hand and most of you didn't. And I fear for you. Because you will probably one day have to learn this lesson. And so look what the king's answer to anger is. 
In verse 23 and 24, look what he says. Therefore, if, you're, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So what does this all, all mean? What does it mean to bring your gift to the altar? Remember, in the Jewish culture and society, when you would go to the temple, you would bring a lamb. You would bring a goat. You would bring an oxen, you could bring birds, you could bring money. It means to bring an offering to God. So he says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, it's a gift of worship. It's an offering. Pride is not an offering. Anger in your heart is not an offering. Hatred in your heart is not an offering. So what is Jesus saying? William MacDonald put it this way, quote, If a person offends another, whether by anger or any other cause, there is no use in bringing his gift to God. The Lord will not be pleased with it. The offender should first go and make the wrong right. Only then will the gift be acceptable, unquote. Does God appreciate your gifts and your offerings? The answer is yes. Does God appreciate unity, peace, and love in the body of Christ? Yes. What value are our sacrifices to God if we neglect unity, love, and peace? Jesus is in effect saying, leave your gift there before the altar. Leave it. Go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Reconciled here is imperative. It means it's a command and it implies an attempt to rectify the situation. Remember here, the word means you are making a conscientious effort to make sure that the problem is resolved and the problem is dealt with. And now we go back all the way back to the first murder ever committed. It was motivated by burning anger. And it was motivated of, of an anger of one brother towards another brother. It was an anger of one brother towards another brother in the context of worship. Two brothers come before the same God. One offers a sacrifice of blood. The other one offers the sacrifice of the fruit of his own labors. The Lord accepts one offering, the offering of blood... And he rejects the other offering, self-effort, self-effort, self-effort. And all of a sudden, one brother looks at the other brother and says, why are you accepted by God and why am I rejected by God? And do you remember in the book of Genesis? The Lord shows up and says to Cain, why is your countenance fallen? You know, why, why are you moping around? Why, why do you have your lips stuck out? And, and why are your eyes constantly down? And why are you so upset? Don't you see sin crouching at the door? And its desire is for you? Why are you so angry and upset? Because you accept him and you reject me. 
Why are you so angry and upset with your husband, with your wife, with your children, with the government? And I know what you're thinking. Preacher, that's justifiable anger. (laughs) Now you're going into the... You talked about justified and unjustified. John MacArthur said, when there is animosity or sin of any sort in our heart, there cannot be integrity in our worship. Unquote. So can anger and hatred and bitterness hinder worship? What do you guys think? Sure. You pray. You praise. The spirit of the Lord prompts you. You're praying and you're praising the Lord. I've come to grips with something about church. There's a reason why some people don't want to go to church. They're not fulfilled. Church doesn't fulfill them. They say, I'm not, you know, why should I go to church? It doesn't do anything for me. It doesn't satisfy me. It doesn't fill me. It doesn't do anything for me. What do you suppose it's supposed to do for you? Well, it's, it's supposed to do something. Is it supposed to provide some sort of fulfillment? Is it supposed to provide some sort of grace or mercy? Is it supposed to provide some sense in which you begin to understand both God and your own condition? And the Spirit of the Lord prompts you. And the the Spirit of the Lord begins to speak to you. And the Spirit of the Lord begins to remind you that there's something or someone that you have to deal with it. And you have to make it right. Well, does this mean you have to track down everyone and anyone who ever has had anything against you? If that's true, I'm in so much trouble. I speak to thousands of people every day either on the radio or through print or through sermons or online. And when you speak to thousands, you offend hundreds. So I started to do the math. How many people have something against me? Oh, now here's what I get to do. I get to resign as your pastor, and now I will spend the rest of my life trying to make it right with everyone. But I don't think that that's what this means. If you're praying to the Lord, if you're praising the Lord and the Lord prompts you to consider a particular person and something that you should do about it, I'm going to suggest to you that maybe the Lord does want you to do something about it. Let's talk about what this is not, just very briefly. Years ago, a woman approached me after a church service and she said, You know what, Pastor? I've been harboring bitterness against you for years, hatred towards you. I've hated you for a long time, four or five years. Basically, all that time I thought you were an idiot. I can't stand you. You make me sick. I hate you. Will you forgive me? Now, I I, I, I want you to pause for just a moment. She thought everything was wrong. Out comes this confession. She feels a whole lot better. Guess who feels a whole lot worse? (laughs) Is this the point of this passage? 
can you in your wildest dreams imagine that what Jesus is saying is, I want you to make life miserable for everyone. John Corson says, and I agree with him, I don't think Jesus instructs us to dig up old hurts and put trips on people. I believe it's simply a matter of being obedient to the leading of the Spirit and rectifying relationships he wants dealt with at the time that he wants us to deal with them. I believe a careful study of the life of Christ will confirm this, unquote. How do we deal with anger? Well, there are three quick ways that we normally do. We clam up. I'm just not going to say anything to anyone. We blow up. We get angry with everybody. Or we grow up. Those seem to be the three options. Clam up, blow up, or grow up. In Proverbs 29, 11, we read, a fool vents all of his feelings. I'm just saying how I feel. I know. Proverbs talks about you. A fool vents all of his feelings, but a, hot, but a wise man holds them back. Are, are you saying a wise man clams up? No. I'm saying that a wise man just doesn't blow up over everything and everyone. Proverbs 19.11, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. If clamming up isn't the answer, and if blowing up isn't the answer, how do we grow up? And I think that the way we do it is we define the problem in terms of the goal. Remember the point, the point, the point, of anger is to give you a sufficient amount of energy in order to resolve a problem or solve a problem or deal with a problem. And what we often do is we stick our fingers in people's faces and say, you know what the problem is? You're the problem. And I'm thinking that that's not what the Bible seems to be indicating. I think what the Bible seems to be indicating is to resolve our problems and deal with them in terms of what the Bible says. It's a strange notion that we can't ever be angry. It's a sinful anger. It's a hasty anger. It's a stewing anger that the Bible forbids. And look at verse 25. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. The subject shifts to the issue of judgment. And here, when it says agree with your adversary, it means a court adversary. It doesn't just mean anyone that you're angry with or who's angry with you. The word describes someone who's initiating criminal charges, who's going to make a complaint on the basis of loss or injury. The implication is that the suit is going to go forward if reconciliation is not made. And so look again at verse 25. Jesus says, agree with your adversary quickly. In what sense? In the sense, why would you allow a spirit of antagonism to continue if you have the power to come to an agreement? What if I don't have the power to come to an agreement? Jesus isn't asking you to have power that you don't have power over. Remember, in the New Testament, the Bible says, live at peace with all people so long as it's within your power. And I know what some of you are thinking. It's not always within my power. That's exactly right. In our culture, 
If you have something against someone, you sue them. Jesus is warning against this obsession that some people have to sue everyone and the reluctance on the part of some people to admit personal guilt. Jesus is in effect saying, live at peace. By the way, you think that's good advice or bad advice? Living at peace is good advice. Here's the second bit of advice that Jesus is giving. Don't make enemies if you can avoid it. Try to avoid making enemies. Good advice or bad advice? It is good advice. But are there people that no matter what you do, they've identified you as their enemy? Yeah, there's not a whole lot you can do about that. In the world of law, you have plaintiffs and defendants. And a plaintiff is one who claims that they've been offended or injured, and the defendant is the one who allegedly has done the offending or committed the injury. But in order for you to understand what you're reading, you have to understand a little bit about first century justice. In the first century, in the world in which Jesus is living in, the plaintiff or the injured had to track down the defendant, that's the person who did the injuring, and physically and forcibly bring them to the judge. And this is what Jesus means when he says, if you are on the road with your adversary, here's the picture. Someone has hunted you down. Someone is dragging you before the judge. The point that Jesus is making, settle. Make a deal. Find some solution before you get to the judge. Why? The point that Jesus is making is settle. Find a solution apologize, say you're sorry and mean it, admit what you've done, make it right. Well, what if I didn't do anything wrong? Is Jesus asking me to admit to something that I never did? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying, though, is if you go before the judge, you may wind up paying a hefty fine. If you go before the judge... He may not believe you. If you go before the judge, you might go to jail. What is Jesus saying? He's saying if you're wrong, admit it. If you're right, fight it. If you remain unrepentant or self-deceived, be sure that your sin will find you out. What is Jesus saying? Don't be in a hurry to go to court. Assuredly, he says in verse 26, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you've paid the last penny. The word penny here is a a Greek word that means the smallest copper coin in circulation in that culture and society. So the reference is to the fines and the penalties imposed. And so Jesus is basically saying, if there's something really, really wrong, Make it right. Jesus is in effect saying, unresolved anger is costly. So what can we do? Someone has well said that the person who refuses to forgive his brother destroys the very bridge which he himself must walk across. So sinful anger has to be dealt with honestly. Confess to God. The Bible indicates that we have to go to our brother and our sister. It doesn't say, 
They have to come to me. That's not what the Bible says. It says you go to them. Leave the altar. In a very real sense, the Lord is saying, I'm not interested in talking to you if you're not interested in talking to them. I don't have anything really worthwhile to say to you unless you have something worthwhile to say to them. If you can't forgive people their sin, if you can't forgive people their failure, why in the world would you want them to forgive you? Why in the world would you expect the Lord to forgive you? And isn't it interesting that the moment, the moment, the moment, the moment that you make Jesus the king, he is the king in your kingdom. You place him first. You say, Jesus, I'm making you first in my life. Jesus says, I want you to make them first in your life. There is an anger that leads to judgment. There is an anger that prevents worship. There is an anger that contains the seed of murder. There is abusive language that contains the spirit of murder. Cursing contains the desire for murder. And so Jesus says, it's not good enough that you've never, ever, 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 ever killed someone. It's important that there, no, there be no seed in your heart. It's important that there be no spirit of murder in your heart. It's important that there be no desire for murder in your heart. And love contains the seeds of life. And wholesome speech contains the spirit of healthy growth. And blessing. Blessing. Blessing contains the desire for reconciliation and peace. And so it's okay for you to say, I want peace. I want blessing. You see, confession, repentance, forgiveness, And reconciliation are all tools that you will need for the rest of your life. And so Jesus will invite us to begin to learn to use those tools in a way that honors him. And now we understand the passage. Would you like to live in a world where people don't kill each other? Jesus says, I want to live in an even better world. I want to live in a world where people don't hate each other. And they're not angry with each other. It's the kind of world, Jesus says, that's the kind of world where he's the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Lord, as you lift the veil and we begin to understand Better and better that Jesus isn't just looking for an external compliance with the rules, but an internal transformation of the heart. We begin to realize more and more that we can't change our heart. That sometimes our heart is so wicked, it's so evil, it is so, so broken.
that we need a brand new heart. And Lord, we know that only you can provide that heart. And so, Lord, again, I pray, I pray, I pray for that person who says, I want a brand new life and I want a brand new heart. That, Lord, you would give them that. That, Lord, they would confess their sin. That they would confess their inability to change their heart on their own. And that they would express a willingness to allow you to change them from the inside out. They know that they're sinners and they know that they need forgiveness. Lord, I pray that they would confess that sin. And then that they would embrace the forgiveness that you offer in the person of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you give us the courage and the wisdom to make things right. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.